Welcome back to the Twin Geeks. I was out at a Brandy Carlisle concert this week and left my daughter with her cousin. And uh, it's interesting how quickly kids could like age out of whatever they're into. Um, uh, they both wanted to be Elsa, of course, and then she realized that her cousin could be Elsa. So it's weird. It's like dampened her dreams of being Elsa. She's like, I just want to be nobody now. And you don't realize how much you're going to miss like phases passing quickly in their lives. I'm trying to remember if I had anything similar to that. It feels so long ago now, because it was, but... Um, right. Yeah, although that's definitely been, like, predominantly your daughter's thing, is the, the Frozen thing. But she hasn't found anything else new? She's not, like, she wasn't inspired by <laughs> Onward or anything, or any other Disney stuff? Um, completely uninspired by Onward, which we'll get to in a minute. <laughs> uh, I think that she's pretty flat on a lot of things with Disney, but... Uh, she likes this new Mickey Mouse Club, which is a kind of absurd for me, um, which is like a five-year-old animation, um, and it teaches her lessons. It gets her to be interactive with the screen, which is kind of what she's into now. Hmm. Uh, maybe Frozen is too much like a, what would you say, like escapist, like laid-back entertainment, because now she's into like entertainment and um, interaction. I guess that's good. I wonder if she'd like... Uh... This other thing as well, because uh, based on your recommendation from last week, I did go ahead and watch Shaun the Sheep, the Shaun the Sheep movie. I was excited too, and then now I've started watching the show, which is on Amazon at the moment, and I'm enjoying that quite a bit. And I think she w- she would enjoy that too. It's a lot of nice short form stuff. Yeah, she's been briefly into that. Uh, she gets it's it's kind of hard to nail down exactly what works. I think it has a lot to do with songs and. Um, you need a lot of musical acts for her to keep her attention right. on a story, I think. I don't think a story matters to her yet, like in her abstract three-year-old brain. You know? Well, yeah, well, the show is definitely, it's not musical, I'll say, though it does have a catchy-as-hell theme song that's a lot of fun. Mm. And uh, uh, it's got, I think, a nice, like, laid-back tone throughout. Like, I, I just, I like putting this on now when I get off of work. I just sit down and watch a couple episodes and just turn off my brain. And it's just a nice, a nice little short, like, couple minutes, uh, you know, split into, like, three parts per half-hour episode of, uh, you know, some usual, like, slapstick, silent-style comedy. There's a lot of... It's just very fun and whimsical. And I, and I find the show works for me a lot better than the most recent film did when you mm-hmm. had me watch, which was Farmageddon, just because it went too sci-fi concept-y, and it, was, and it didn't do enough with it. I thought the the alien wasn't a very inspired design. It just looked like a dog with tentacles. And and all <laughs> the sci-fi that, stuff was... I, made, haven't, I haven't seen too much of the show, but I think you'll be a lot more in with the first movie they made. It's it's grounded. It's way more grounded. In the, that, yeah. but like, like, there's some things, like early on in the movie, they do the gag with the... Uh, you know, the sheep dressing up in a trench coat and everything and ordering a pizza. And there's a whole... There's an episode that that's just that whole bit in like the first couple episodes of the the show, which was fun. I just haven't figured it out really as a dad how to feel about this when she comes to me and and like, are you Elsa today? She's like, I want to be nothing. <laughs> what is oh. this existentialism for my three year old? <laughs> yeah, I want to be nobody. That it's just sad to me, um, and I don't really know how to deal with that change yet. Has she been raiding your bookshelf for some Nietzsche or something? Is that what's going on? There is some up there. I I think I saw her with the Beyond Good and Evil the other day. 
Or topically, thus spoke Zarathustra. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was the kind of stuff that didn't work for me in the, the Shaun the Sheep movie, because it was very clear. It was just 2001 and Close Encounters references, and that was as oh, far yeah. as the sci-fi premise went. It's like, all right, we're going to stop here. And I'm like, man, when, when Chicken Run did this kind of aping of like uh, World War II prison escape movies and stuff, you know, it was at least way more original. Like, it wasn't just literally The Great Escape or Stalag 17. It had it had more meat to it. I'm still very fond of Ardman going and not doing more digital work and trying to do more handcrafted stuff. Certainly, and I, and I want to support that and do that. I enjoyed this in the same amount that I enjoyed their uh, the Pirates movie from a little while back, which was their most recent thing. I didn't see Early Man yet. And mm. I'm like, I like this. I like how it looks. I think it's a little weak in the writing still, but I like this. I, yeah. I like it more than... I, th- I think I've liked everything I've seen from Ardman more than anything I've seen from Leica. Yeah. Um, Despite I, being so close I'm in proximity to I'm pretty high to on Leica. Right. I, uh, I like Kubo a lot more than a lot of Ardman, but otherwise I think I agree. Yeah, well, also I just have such a soft spot for all of the walls and Grama stu- stuff. Mm. Plus, Chicken Run is just a super staple in my household here, and I watch it far more often than I should be. Do you yeah. feel like you had a moment as like a kid where you wanted to phase out of cartoons and go into more like live action shows and uh, different entertainment? Or do you think you stuck basically with what you had? No, I mean, looking at my shelf full of 90s cartoons that I frequently indulge in, I'd say I never grew out of that phase. <laughs> Would you say after the 90s that you stopped consuming the new content? Because like going to your place it looks like it's all from like uh, pretty like 98 maybe no, well that's like when i was a child i was born in 94 so uh you know i i did still watch cartoons frequently up through the the 2000s and such uh even all the way up you know until i was out of high school i was still basically watching a lot of that stuff you know if it wasn't cartoons then it was anime on uh you know uh adult swim or whatever it was on arrested development at age four very interesting psychological <laughs> profile we're building of you <laughs> i i still have that picture of you in the anime section which is yes just which, holding his blackmail yeah it's, it's not a flattering picture at all not only because of the anime <laughs> sign but because i'm making a weird face i don't know why you put that uh, you, you got me in that how you caught that <laughs> Very excited face. I think you were excited about something on the other wall, but I caught you within the context of the anime section, which makes it really good. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I think I agree with you in that assessment of uh, my arrested development. As we saw from our, our Christmas <laughs> episode, there's something about my my inherent nostalgia that just you know renders me this, this very different person, very weird and sentimental. Different from your other takes, which are... Um, other people's nostalgia or an American nostalgia for things that aren't made anymore, I think. Yeah, I, I guess this thing, I'm, I'm surprisingly regressive when it comes to art, I guess <laughs> you would say. <laughs> I mean, I don't I don't want to mean that way, but I come on here and I talk badly about Parasite for, you know, during the release, and then I'm just sitting here wanting to talk about old movies and cartoons I grew up with. I'm an, uh, I'm an old soul, let's put it that way. <laughs> I don't remember mine exactly, but it's it's kind of spirit training to watch it go out of your child differently than it would be for yourself, I think. Um, I did get a teacher out of Ice Skate a little bit this week, so there were moves in a positive direction. Yeah, I saw the, those pictures you sent me. They were very adorable. 
Uh, and of course, you know, your, your relationship with your daughter is a highlight of our discussions here on the podcast. Well, it's nice that she went from all of this frozen talk and constantly acting like she's freezing us or something and freezing <laughs> the dog to, you know, just being on the actual ice and she laid down on it, put her hand on it and she's like frozen, <laughs> you know, she, she related it to a real experience and I saw her grow in a stage that really worried me how quickly it was going. And so I'm now I'm really stuck on it. But I also think it's great. She's becoming Ezra. Like, she doesn't want to be Elsa. She wants to be her. Yeah, that's a, that's a nice thing. I, I'm thinking that's what she means probably more by nothing than the kind of existential nihilism that we may have been considering earlier on here. <laughs> yeah. Um, she's only read two Nietzsche's, so I think she's <laughs> got a couple of years until she gets to the uh, God is Dead stage. <laughs> Until she reads Bro's piece on the site. Go read that, by the way, on the God's uh, Not Dead series. Yeah, that was a nice project to, to see finally come to fruition. He talked about that sometime last year. And we're like, bro, why would you do that to yourself? <laughs> and watch these <laughs> terrible propagandist, you know, Christian films. But he, he's, in, he rates, he's invulnerable to that kind of thing. He rates everything on a G factor, which is really fantastic. It's recommended reading. Yeah, as with always, Bro just has so much fun in his writing, and uh, I I always love to edit those pieces. So from indulging from childhood fantasies to uh, adult fantasies, I saw Fantasy Island, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Oh, okay, so how was that? (laughs) Um, You could tell it's a producer's film that the director, I forget his name at the moment, but that he uh, had just done Truth or Dare, and another high-concept film without any real uh, material, connective material that needs to be shot that way. Um, There's obviously no reason for it to go that way, and uh, it has loose ends on loose ends, and it over-explains itself so much to the audience. It's it's such a miserable theater experience. That's a shame, but I don't know if I expected much out of it to begin with. No. I mean, reviving, like, what is it, like, an 80s or 70s ABC franchise for a horror movie that releases early in the year, your odds are real low. It's just, I don't know, it's so weird, some of the things they're going after to adapt now and see if it works. Mm. You know, like, they're adapting a television, was it, was it like, a reality show or something from the 70s? No? No, no, it, no. Was, it, was a con- it was a high conceptual show where people go through to an island and... The whole premise is they have to see their fantasy through to its end. So whatever they okay. imagine, they, they have to go experience the whole thing. It was a it was kind of more sitcom-y, but uh, I guess, I guess it's a horror movie. The name just reminds me much more of like these, you know, like the the weird uh, sitcom kind of things or whatever. or Not not like a sitcom, but reality shows, like a, a Love Island, I guess is what I'm thinking yeah. of or something like that. I don't know. And, I think that's what I pictured for a long time, too. And I thought it was going to be a cool horror romance thing. But I had to look into this old ABC show. Yeah. Did, did you actually watch any of it or did you just look up no. what it was? Um, <laughs> it just didn't inspire me to. I I wanted to feel that way at, at the end of it. I wanted to go back and be like, maybe there's... I do think there's something cool here. I just think they didn't reach any of the potential. Um, everyone looks like a D-list celebrity playing another celebrity, so they all look like lookalikes of five or six different actors. Um, Weird. It's just so bland. There's nothing going there. Well, it's not like you had much promise with the director there. You said you did Truth or Dare before this? Yeah, and 
I don't feel like he has any real capacity for wanting to make movies. Like, it's such a bad thing for me when someone comes in and they create a show like this because there's a concept there and there's so many people that want to make movies. But this uh, Jeff Wadlow is his name. He's just a major producer in all these films. And, um, like, it, it's one of those things where you direct a movie and you go on their MDiv and it's like they're known for producing it, right? It's They're not known for even directing the movies they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I'm i really against that. I want directors to make horror movies. Uh, last year, Blumhouse had the same slot for Happy Death Day to You, which is a, a big loss just transitioning to this. Well, I mean, again, you're still the only person in support of that dead franchise now. I mean, but I'm, I'm sure it turned out better than this, whatever this was. So this is uh, disappointing to see. Though I think you would generally agree with me that the beginning of this year is better off than last year was. Yeah, I think there's some stuff. Um, there's some stuff happening now. Next week we'll have a Invisible Man, which is really like gliding up on early critic readings. Everyone in my circle is really excited about it. So, yeah, that that um, one looked interesting, and the trailers I was surprisingly interested by. Uh, yeah, uh, what a concept to go and ground that, and uh, that's one exception where you could take a really old property and actually do something else. Right, it seems almost entirely unrelated to the H.G. Wells story. Mm. Like, I don't I don't see any interest there, so it's almost <laughs> like, why even call it that? But if that's what's going to sell tickets and the film is good, then I guess it works. Hey, we want a good universal horror movie, right? We want something better than The Mummy, so if it takes doing that. And uh, the director's last film, Upgrade, was a lot of fun, so I'm in. Yeah. Uh, did you watch anything else of interest this week? I know we mentioned one of them. Yeah. I, I took my daughter to Onward, um, to the all-press screening. Uh, mm-hmm. She was very good during it. She seems uh, sophisticated and ready to go to movies, despite uh, her uh, singular love for uh, Frozen and now Mickey Mouse Club. <laughs> That's good, because I know the, in the past when you've taken her, she hasn't necessarily made it all the way through a film before. You watched a Penguin yeah. documentary with her last year, right? Yeah, this time last year. And uh, I feel like now she's ready to come to the screenings with me. And apart from, like, leaning over and just saying Dada and, like, climbing up and cuddling with me <laughs> half the movie, I think she was pretty good during it. Do you, um, do you think that gets in your the way of your objective role as a critic? I don't think so. I mean, I can enjoy that part of it and then also criticize the movie, I think. Uh, especially when afterwards I, I came out, they do the little thing afterwards where you they interview you about your instant thoughts for the studio to get. Mm-hmm. And I just said, oh, you know, it gets better as it goes. And it's um, a nice story of brotherly love. Ezra, what do you think? And she said, I don't like it. <laughs> She's the real harsh critic here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she gave them more of a review than I did up front. But my full reviews on the website and... Um, I thought it would be a story about, you know, dead parents. Of course it is a little bit as their dad's pants are reanimated and <laughs> they go on like an epic gamer quest to go see what's uh, if they could revive his top half for a day to spend time they never had with him. I don't know, it sounds like a similar premise to what we talked about in Jack Frost, which, you know, I love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's better than Jack Frost. Uh, 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 all right. High bar. Um, Tom- that's That's some great <laughs> recommendation there. Uh, Tom Holland and Chris Pratt play the two characters, which is weird because it's kind of like a Marvel thing, and it feels marvelly to have those two together. Um, I think uh, once you really get into it, there's some good stuff going on there. It's it's kind of fun. Uh, 
I I wouldn't say it's a high bar Pixar movie. I I'm waiting for Soul myself. Mhm. I don't know too much about Soul, but it um, immediately just on a visual level I think it looks a little more interesting. I know the trailers for Onward didn't incite much excitement out of me, uh despite going with the interesting D&D-ish kind of fantasy uh approach, which I think is a it's a new perspective for Pixar we haven't seen yet really, right? Yeah, um I don't know if it's do you know if it's based in New Orleans? I at least know it's a jazz film about like a guy's soul and music. Oh, and so I have no idea. Like I said, I, I know very little about uh, soul. I just know what's it? Is it Jamie Foxx? I in can't the role? promise that it's about. Yeah, I think it is, but I can't promise it's New Orleans. But it is about jazz, and um, I'm That's really cool. into that. I like jazz. Jazz is good. We like jazz. Yeah. And the idea of soul and body and how you could illustrate that through jazz seems really improvisational and it should work well for animation. So I'm real excited for that. But uh, you could skip onward. I don't think anyone needs to rush out. All right. I'll keep an eye out for it on Disney Plus, I guess, whenever that comes around. Cool doc called Foosballers that I, I, I kind of would recommend. Um, I don't know a lot about foosball as, like, sports, so it was kind of interesting to see, like, the intense passions, and I like a documentary that gets into a weirdly abstract subject matter that people get very passionate about. Is it, like, a, like, very intense kind of sport? I I imagine there's, like, a, what, there's, like, an underground scene for, for it in super big, like, championships that everyone's like, what, what the hell is this? And we don't know about that. Like, this is a, a game you play at the YMCA. (laughs) I think the fun part of it is that it chases back, traces back the whole lineage to like, this is like a, you know, like a war activity that soldiers got to kind of recoup when they were hospitalized. And then it came from like Europe to the US and it was huge in the 70s. And then video games happened and then the tournament scene really suffered. But it follows what the modern tournament scene is like and the people who are best in this sport. It is very, they are like hard, passionate guys. They have like rats for their tables, right? And they're they have the whole setup. Uh, I I think I I think I really like it, but I I don't know what to do with it yet for content. This might be it. Well, I mean, it's it's nice at least to highlight it here. Uh, it sounds like an interesting uh, documentary. I guess it's always nice, and as well, just to, I think to uh, have that that document the, to preserve the idea of this uh, lineage of of sports, this very niche you know kind of market here. Yeah, it might be one that I just throw on my end-of-year list because uh, I found another one that's unique and uh, kind of fun that I wouldn't be against anyone watching. Yeah, well, it was a good recommendation for all you uh, documentary fans out there. And foosballers. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, I've never taken it very seriously. It's like something that I would do if I was left too late at daycare as a kid. Yeah, You know. in, in terms of like, you know barroom you know sports activities or whatnot like it's it's like below pool and ping pong for sure probably tied with like air hockey and things that you would do yeah right (laughs) and i then i saw the of course at the ice rink they had like a hockey version that i've always enjoyed so i i did kind of fiddle with that uh yesterday as well um i i guess it it made me realize that it is more present than i thought it was yeah, just kind of, I guess, in the the background of things. Yeah, it's just a periphery thing that's wherever you go that's arcade-ish, they will have some, but uh, you won't ever consider it a primary function of that. Right. I, I imagine it won't ever, like, go away necessarily, but it, it is definitely yeah. one of those, like, underground things that you don't think about, really. 
at, at least in Europe, I think it's always going to yeah. be a mainstay with the, I it, mean, foosball, or, foosball is just like the German word for soccer, or football, so. Right, it's, it's, uh, definitely more of a European thing, I think, you know, again, we, we Americans, even though we, we do have our football slash soccer over here, it's, uh, not quite as popular as everything else. It's kind of actually a joke in some ways. We like to make fun of soccer. Yeah. Um, of course, we have like a really good MLS team here, and, and they win the championship, and we're okay with soccer now, but uh, we we like American football. Yeah, that's that's definitely the preference. Um, so uh, beyond that, I don't have anything new, but we do have something real old to talk about. Old yet. Yeah, this is uh, another throwback and probably a throwback a lot of people listening won't be as familiar with uh despite the the names and the clout uh involved here uh this is a film from 1947 dark passage uh with it was the third collaboration between real life husband and wife humphrey bogart and lauren bacall and they had uh bacall had just been released from her old contract and signed with warner brothers for this so it's their first on there right uh, yeah, they'd done, I think the other ones were Warner's as well, because, uh, I mean, To Have and Have Not really? may have been borrowed. I don't know, i got to look and see, but uh, Humphrey Bogart was a uh, a Warner Brothers contract player for basically his entire career, um, mm. but he may have gotten loaned out for, like, To Have and Have Not, I can't exactly remember. That was the one where they really kicked it off and, you know, had that electric chemistry, and they met, and Bogart left his wife to be with Bacall. Uh, after that, <laughs> and it's it's exceptional because Hawks, of course, brought her in as like this golden girl that would be that would be her debut film was maybe her best performance. She was have and have not. She was eighteen, I believe, and the character of Slim she plays there was modeled after uh, Hawks's own wife. You know, so mm-hmm. a lot of the mannerisms that became very unique and specific to Bacall as an actress were borrowed from Howard Hawks's wife, and that's kind of how she defined herself. So I believe he had the contract and then he sold it off to Warner Brothers, whether right. or not it was with them originally. But Yeah, and that was it. Yeah. I, they only did uh, four films together. This is probably the least recognized or well-known of mm-hmm. them because it's, uh, they did To Have and Have Not, which is the big electric one with the, uh, you know, you know how to whistle, don't you, Steve, line. Uh, then they did The Big Sleep, which is, I think, probably their, you know, the, basically is equally well-known. It's Raymond Chandler adaptation, famous noir film. Then they did this uh, with director Delmer Daves, and then they did Key Largo was the last film they did shortly after, which is a John Huston film. How would you profile Delmer Daves? I think also underknown and underrecognized as with this film. Certainly is, and uh, to a point where I think I'm one of the only people who really love Delmer Daves, <laughs> despite uh, I, I've only seen like a good handful at the moment, but he's really someone I'm keeping my eye out for, and I've got some more movies of his that I want to check out. Uh, but we talked about him before on the podcast because he made the the wonderful 310 to Yuma uh, like another decade after this film, which is a, a big you know Western favorite of mine. It's one of my favorite Western films. I love it. It's beautiful, and it's got the same kind of dark noir lighting that you see really present in Dark Passage as well. But he also made another Western just the year before that, with uh, Glenn Ford as well, called Jubal, which was a film I recommended to you and had you watch a while ago. Yeah, well, yeah, we he came up for Jubal and for 310. Um, I, I would like to explore more, because I, I think he's just a very likable director. He doesn't come off like Assolition. 
I think his whole reputation in Hollywood was that he was just a nice guy. Yeah, that's the general thing. And again, he was a very he he's not discussed in any manner or studied or profiled. So I think it would be really interesting to to do more of an analysis on his work. But you know, it's a matter of tracking it down. I've seen a couple other of his films. Uh, his debut feature was a war film called uh, Destination Tokyo. It's basically mm. just a propaganda film with lots of you know showy stuff of the the submarines and you know go navy stuff. Very boring. Mm. But uh, otherwise, there's a couple others I'm seeking out. He's got a couple other westerns and noir titles uh, to seek out as well that uh, really interest me. And even in the underwhelming ones, like I said with Destination Tokyo or another one I saw, which was called The Red House with uh, mm. Edward G. Robinson, there's still a distinct visual style that I think really uh, I gravitate towards. I guess that's the thing about this that was initially striking to me when I found it was how innovative it looks and it has the distinct um well we don't always remember the first thing uh to do something so we had a the lady in the lake which did the first person thing but we could say this might be the most first truly successful attempt uh yeah the lady in the lake was a uh a film noir a raymond chandler adaptation like we talked about from robert montgomery that came out just a year before this that does that that more fully commits to the first-person perspective thing, you know, the subjective camera view throughout, and it's... Uh, Possibly too much. But yeah, it's it's yeah. a little mixed in, in how people like it as much, whereas this one is very much uh, celebrated, and I think in how much it doesn't rely on that necessarily, even though it is predominantly that first half of the film is a lot of that subjective camera footage, it's not completely that, and then it transitions afterwards to be something else. But, I mean, that kind of uh, cinematography has been used throughout, you know, in many films before. You know, there's a... You know, the 1930s uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is a prime example of one that does that. There's a particularly great striking shot in Metropolis that, you know, does that as well. Uh, and, and lots of other films, you know, it's not the first by any means to do that, but for a film to be fully committed to it as like a, a gimmick almost, you would call it, uh, I think we can call Dark Passage probably the most successful for sure up until yeah. that point. Um, I find it just to be the most successful, but I wouldn't watch something like Hardcore Henry, which to me is too video gamey. Right, well, that's the that's the immediate comparison for modern take we see on that, you know, because it's done all in that. But also, Hardcore Henry is going for a very explicitly video game recreation style. And yeah. for the people who enjoy that kind of thing, it's successful, but this is not doing that. And even though I, I get the same feeling of immersion uh, in, in those scenes that I get from, like, say, playing a video game, it's a very different manner, and it's well implemented, I think, because it's balanced with non, you know, with different perspectives as well. We see the character still hidden in shadows and scenes as well. It's not just him. As opposed to those perspective shots from, like, earlier films, it feels like the camera are the eyes of the character. So we have people breaking the fourth wall and talking to us as the camera. Yeah. And that makes it really compelling, especially considering, like, McCall's energy when she's put with... Uh, uh, Humphrey, it feels really good. Oh, and that's the that's the other surprising thing as well, and something that Jack Warner uh, was not very happy to learn about when the film was in the midst of production is that uh, Bogart is not actually seen until more than an hour into the film. More than half of the film, he is his face is not on screen, which is well, uh, at least like thirty seven minutes. Then it cuts to him in bandages, and then it takes like another like what twenty three minutes. Yeah, then we get him out of bandages. Yeah, it's something like that. 
and you know w- with the bandages still you know it's, it's this idea that you know jack warner was not happy about his biggest star being obscured throughout the entire first half of the film <laughs> and and you can see why but it's very effective but uh to go back to your original point there about bacall it's really clear how she's not just relying on Bogart here and say something like the big sleep where it's definitely more of a Bogart film and she's a secondary character, even though they've got that energy together. She's very much a, an important and, you know, powerful figure in the film and, and really commands attention, especially in those scenes where it's, it's just her, the camera's locked on her and she's looking directly through the lens at us. And it's, it's this very intimate kind of feeling and it, like I said it's very immersive I feel and effective and I, I can't recall another film that achieves that quite as well there is that central performance to that that it never gives us the focus of Bogart so she becomes the first primary character that we get a, a visual relationship with yeah. so she becomes increasingly important to the film mm-hmm. and becomes the central figure in some ways uh, at least for the first half. She disappears a little bit more for the second half when we, yeah. when we switch. And that's a, a little bit where the film, like, you miss the first half in the in the very functional gimmick. Uh, you know, I think that's the thing is, you, surprisingly, you end up missing that. Even though I think if you did have more, it would be overindulgent. So it's a kind of, kind of catch-22 there. I wondered if there was a way to bring it back toward the end, at least, like, in some interesting more convincing way oh you Maybe know something happens or he has to go under disguise again you know what would have been a great way to end it i just thought about this because at the ending you have them meeting up in i think it's mexico or wherever it was mm. uh and and so if you had him he's sitting there waiting at the table and and you get and he's waiting for her and you yeah, see and you see her walk that shot you see her walk in from his perspective, like you, you gain, you return to that. That would be a really nice, <laughs> like, stamp on the end of the film. I think. Instead, it just cuts to her in her David Byrne shoulder pad <laughs> suit. Yeah, that was and the... she does a talking head stance. <laughs> it was a, a funny comparison for you to make, but no, I, I think that's interesting as well. That a film that's so dark and tense throughout, it does end on a fairly optimistic note because this is much more in the vein of kind of a Hitchcockian kind of stuff where you get that you know uh, stretch tension throughout the entire piece uh, than say the usual kind of detective stories or you know strictly noirish stuff that they were doing before this I think it shows Delmer Davis has an intense belief in human beings because mm-hmm. everyone who approaches Bogart in the film believes that he is innocent in some way and they all approach him with some assumption of innocence they don't believe guilt as the first primary belief and everything about the film suggests that people can be good even if they've made mistakes we could you know trust in some part of them yeah and and it's just there he does a really great job with those side characters especially we talked you know watching the film about like the cabbie and how much personality he has and everything the doctor yeah the doctor is great too he's very like mischievous but also charming in this interesting way it's <laughs> he has uh, an intense look when the cabbie's with him when we get the two of them together it's so fantastic and you've got you know of course the likes of um you know agnes moorhead's character towards the end and she's this really wonderful presence and of course she you know is a wonderful actress gives her uh character a lot of uh depth and uh there's also the the guy that you know uh, starts to frame Bogart once he figures out who he is towards the end, 
It's all great stuff, and I think mm. that's a product of uh, Delmer Dave's great ability as both a writer and a director, because not only do you see this great character work in this film, but we see it similarly in the side characters of Jubal and 310 to Yuma, as we talked about before. You could just see he believes in humans and that he likes characters and um, that he gets a lot of good performances out of uh, pretty much everyone he puts on screen. He's good at pairing people together as well. Yeah, and he was a writer predominantly in Hollywood before he ended up directing and, you know, worked a lot at uh, many different studios. And so, you know, it's really great to see him. And again, it's it's one of those things where I'm happy to, I'm very happy to highlight him on our podcast for at least the second time, hopefully not the last, because he's not a director anyone talks about. And I've, we've been thinking about this film for a while. It was one that we had an interesting shared connection on. There are yeah. a few of them like this that I don't think I don't I know anyone else who really appreciates, but we both do. It was it was weird because we first like mentioned this film to each other in like the very first couple weeks of meeting, which was very interesting. Yeah. It, it's it's another case. <laughs> it came up early. Yeah, which is which was surprising because it's like you know about this more obscure Humphrey Bogart film. I know I know about this. <laughs> And I've always been fascinated with it. So there was one thing I was going to talk about. I've been meaning to revisit it since playing Metal Gear Solid Five. Yeah, you, you mentioned that to me. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because in um, a Kojima game, he always has cinematic reference points, right? Sometimes right. more literal than others. Um, Metal Gear Solid has always been a third-person game, and it's played out in a big cinematic series that's always been predominantly third person shows you characters like they're on a camera it doesn't feel beholden to like a video game camera or a video game system storytelling right right um so at the start of metal gear solid 5 you wake up and um you have a mirror to you this doctor's just finished refiguring your face and you're covered in plastic bandages um and it goes first person for the first time in the series uh and you have this hospital escape scene that's all about presumed identity, and it does not take like a video gamey first person camera perspective. It goes all the way into like a more cinematic one that Kojima would be more uh, comfortable making cinematic illusions with. So I always found that especially clever, and uh, there are parts of the escape that just remind me so much of this the, the whole play with identity as David Bowie's Man Who Sold the World plays over it. It's a chilling moment in video games, one of my favorites. Um, and I always wanted to think more about that dynamic and tie it back to this. I think it's a really uh, interesting comparison there, and certainly something I would have never thought about. It's nice to see that kind of tie-in. Do you think this was a direct inspiration on that? Do you know that for... Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I don't know that for sure, but with Kojima, I'm I'm 100% confident. I feel like I could look it up and find something. Um, I, I feel like he's so inspired by early Hollywood and classic Hollywood films that it would be very surprising to me that if he weren't mm-hmm. oh yeah I, I definitely have to agree that the the, the gimmick again i keep I, I wish i had a better word for it because it doesn't it's not really yeah. a gimmick it's it's a it's an interesting it's a perspective right? yeah it's an interesting perspective that's not really been utilized uh much since or before and it's done incredibly well throughout the entire time you know from the very beginning with the escape sequence from san quentin it's just i think it's really compelling and you get those interesting shots i you know i've got that image of him rolling down the hill as the barrel and then you're in in the (laughs) barrel and you see him kind of crawl out and go out under the the bridge or wherever that that thing was you know uh, yeah 
And then for sure, and I mean another Metal Gear Solid thing. It just reminds me of people walking around in cardboard boxes. Like it's kind of <laughs> comical too. <laughs> well, and that's the thing, and that's really that tension that's pulled kind of throughout the film. There is that you know he's he's hiding and he's afraid of yeah. having his identity exposed, and we get those very close calls kind of throughout you know in the instances there especially in the beginning when he's like he's in the car with Bacall and he's hiding under the the blanket as you know people are coming to inspect and whatnot or that scene where he's in the cab I love the scene in the cab not only because we talked <laughs> about the cabbie and he's got a great personality but seeing that because again it's, it's one of those moments where we switch from the first person perspective to see everything in a more objective way but they do such a brilliant job of totally uh you know hiding bogart's face in, in complete shadow it's just like this black void where his his face is and looks really great the it's shadows like he just has a black bag over his face the way it's shadowed right it's the shadows so throughout are really fantastic and again that's a great hallmark of um you know delmer dave's um visual style you know we see a lot of that kind of noirish lighting in the you know the dark feeling of 310 to yuma like we talked mm. about before um, and here we find a lot of his context and relationship to America. We're coming off like post-war filmmaking, mm-hmm. where they're like re-inspired to use real settings and uh, especially to invest in great American cities. So we get San Francisco, like in in all its glory. I kind of forgot how much the end really leads up to that. You know, further exploration where it magnifies the city a bit more. Oh, and it's such a prominent part of the film as well it doesn't feel just like a nice pretty backdrop because they had a weekend in san francisco like it's very predominantly displayed and used to highlight you know a lot of what's going on there you know there's a big lead up from here golden gate bridge yeah from here we're getting away from like sound stages and starting to get toward like realistic environments too Right. Well, it was just a year after this, like the very next year, they went and did all the location shooting for uh, Treasure of the Sierra Madre as well, which is uh, actually something I wanted to, to briefly mention because this Dark Passage here is the first film on the podcast we're talking about uh, Humphrey Bogart with, but we did actually record a discussion on Treasure of the Sierra Madre a couple weeks back that was tragically lost. <laughs> <laughs> it was um, some... Uh, editing errors there. Uh, it, ha- it happens so, from time to time where you have technical whatevers that they just get in the way, which is very sad because we had a nice lengthy discussion about Bogart and his prevalence in Hollywood and our you know uh, the, how much time we took to get around to actually talking about him. I think it's funny now that instead of a very big property that you know everyone knows like Treasure of the Sierra Madre or like Casablanca or something, which you know I've got a piece on the site about we're talking about Dark Passage. <laughs> Which is one we just originally meant to anyway, so maybe this is the intended order. Yeah, um, yeah, I suppose that's the case. There's other, there's of course, there's a, a whole host of Bogart films that are worth talking about and that we intend to get to. I think it's another one of those things where it's like we didn't want to just jump straight onto like Maltese Falcon or whatever because, right. you know, it's it's so obvious and easy to talk about something like that one and it's been covered so much there's only, all, all we can do is repeat all the same things. But whereas with Dark Passage, it definitely feels like it's undercovered and underrepresented and, you know, something we both, I think, love. I think I would say I love this more than most Bogart films. I'd say it's a great film. I mean, I think with the uh, technique used in the beginning and some of the identity play that happens here, I I really love it. Um, I think we both agreed that the story doesn't quite matter as much as we would, would like it to. 
Which is fine, I think, because that's what everyone's argument for the greatness for the big sleep is, you know, is that the mm. story doesn't make any sense, and that's part of the appeal, which I don't necessarily agree with. But here, I, I see that a bit more, because it's so much more about visually what's going on, and the character work, and, you know, the interaction there. And there's still a story that's present in a kind of mystery you're figuring out about the murder frame-up that, you know, Bogart's trying to uncover and, you know... Uh, clear his name of mm. uh, but it's just it it doesn't feel like such a priority compared to the the visual style the character work you know the the beauty of the film especially i gotta say i gotta recommend as well i know you watched this on a somewhat shitty dvd but the blu-ray is so fantastic it's such a great restoration i felt like it really enhances the beauty of the film it is a good-looking film. You could tell they're approaching new techniques, that Delmer Davis was issued like new handheld cameras, and that he's able to play with that in some innovative ways. So, uh, I mean, there's a lot of technical ground that, that works in this. Mm-hmm. I, it's, again, it's, I think it's a very uh, visually appealing movie, and the, and the fact that the cinematography managed to be very fluid and human... Uh, during those uh, scenes of first person perspective without feeling shaky like nowadays yeah. we'd see a lot of again more more handheld this still feels very controlled but it feels you know like deliberate and, and like natural in its movements uh, especially like it, it really caught my attention when we have him going down to d- get the plastic surgery for the first time and you see the camera kind of move and look up towards the ceiling and then he looks to his left to see like the doctor it's still moving it's not just like on this singular rig or whatever where it goes up and down mm-hmm. yeah they they do make good use of more handheld tech and uh, i i do think it's a noir i know you have misgivings about the categorization here but i think it has elements it has theme and place and characters and setting i yeah. think there's a lot of elements Um, We can sit here, and that's the thing with noir, is that noir is such a kind of stingy uh, um, categorization. It's not really a genre, it's a style, it's a, you know, period, a movement during the, you know, 40s and 50s, Uh, and definitions vary drastically, and mine happen to be particularly precise. Uh, Yeah, for me, it's good enough to get, like, a post-war movie about identity and very shadowed cinematography, and I'm like, oh, it's noir. The, the cinematography is very noirish, I'll say that, but that's indicative in Delmer Dio's filmography on whole. You know, it's, again, like mm. I said, the constant uh, comparison to 310 to Yuma. 310 to Yuma has a lot of, you know, noir lighting, but I don't yeah, think it's a noir you film. Say it's, it's a noirish western or something, it, or a neo western. Noirish is is a term I'm willing to use here because it is it is related in that sense, and it you know imitates a lot of the qualities, but it's Dark Passage doesn't necessarily have the same uh, thematics or like hazy dreamlike quality that noir does and i don't feel it's cynical <laughs> in any way it's not it's not cynical at all especially when we have the, the happy ending the romantic you know embrace and all that that's not noir to me at all i think that's the only thing i believe in about your your disqualification is that it's not cynical that he believes in humans and that it's optimistic ultimately and and cynicism is such an integral aspect of noir i feel like i mean it has some but i think it's it's window dressing right the cynicism is the heart of the movie no especially with how many characters there are that like help him throughout his journey you know Mm. and are generally like wholesome and you know willing to and some of them even like they refuse money from him you know or they try to like it, it doesn't feel very cynical to me at all but visually for certain i agree that it's you know noir like 
it's definitely more of a I, I compare it to a Hitchcockian kind of thriller, uh, as, yeah. especially when you can consider the the Franz Waxman score, which is very Bernard Herrmann like. You know, and it mm-hmm. it evokes a lot more. I guess you could you could compare a lot to like uh, it's got like the the visual styling reminds me of something like a uh, Suspicion or Strangers on a Train, and the San Francisco setting of course evokes later stuff like you know like you put this in Vertigo next to each other. I think that makes a good pair for San Francisco thrillers. Oh, I wanted to mention that I saw this um, this guy Madden uh, documentary essay piece last year called "The Green Fog," which is like a installation piece for uh, uh, like cinema museums or something. But it would be like a all the elements of San Francisco from movie and TV that are filmed together, and they're put in like this green fogged out idea that's based on all Hitchcock references. So that's a good look for anyone looking for more San Francisco based on vertigo influence there's a i believe you do have a review of that on the site which was nice to oh yeah read. i do mm-hmm. but yeah the, of course the setting is such a, a nice aspect of it as we talked about generally i just uh, really love the film and i'm sad that it did not get the same success that the other bacall and bogart films did uh you know i, mm-hmm. I know that was for a variety of factors at the time like obviously the the central idea of it was a little off-putting to some audiences, but also the the time in which it came out, you know, uh, Bogart was a very active, uh, you know, member in the political landscape uh, in the beginning of the, you know, in the late end of the 40s and the beginning of the 50s there with the, the Hollywood blacklist on the rise, and he was a, you know, major protester of uh, the HUAC hearings. And uh, do you know what he was involved in or what the... Like these un-American protests are about. Yes, yeah. So basically, it's there was the it's a lot of the beginning of the McCarthyism, and specifically there were you know um, there was a committee called the House on American Activities uh, that was seeking out um, you know former communists and writers, and they you know this idea of you know subversive writing being snuck into the pictures, and they were blacklisting them, taking them you know removing them from from hollywood effectively and it was this huge scandal throughout the 50s there and bogart and company you know of course wife lauren bacall and others were major uh, protesters in this going on and it was uh pretty uh somewhat controversial for that because at the time the country was definitely a lot more conservative and you know the which was what allowed them to get away with this for for quite some time and putting all of these yeah. workers out of work and specifically seeking out these supposed communists, you know, some of which who were, some of which who weren't, you know, and entirely eliminating them from the system. Do you feel like Dark Passage has any political value removing him from the screen for a while? I mean, no. Uh, Bogart was a no, big enough star. No. no, I mean, he was in Treasure of the Sierra Madre the next year we saw and such. Um, you know, Bogart was uh, a super, you know prolific star and you know nothing he did uh okay. political wise really slowed down like they, they maybe didn't do as well but you know just a a couple years later you know he won an oscar for the african queen so go watch this movie with no political value <laughs> I, I mean i don't uh, see it coming through in the writing necessarily that's the thing as well with this is that it's just it's a really good thriller but there's not like you, you keep mentioning something about identity within the film but but i don't yeah i don't get the sense that there's a whole lot thematically going on under the surface of it is the only thing. It's on a technical level. It's about yeah. identity and and his purpose in reestablishing a life. And 
Uh, that comes through in the plot, but I, I don't think it, thematically it's very deep about it. Yeah, and and that's totally fine, and I don't think that's the case with practically any of these uh, films. I don't think the Bogart Bacall films have much thematic meat to them whatsoever. I think they're they're very entertaining and electric films based on the chemistry of the performers. And again, Delmore Daves brings something special in the the brilliant and inventive cinematography of the film. And while the story isn't the most engaging, it's still you know very good, and it's it's in that kind of uh, you know thrilling vein of a kind of uh, Chandler-ish story. Yeah, so we both recommend it highly. Yeah, it's a, it's definitely a favorite. It might be my favorite of their four pairings together, but we'll have to revisit to have and have not together to decide that for sure. I think that'll be my favorite once we get to it, but well, uh, we'll get there. Yeah, certainly. And I'm glad we finally got to, to highlight this one and talk about Bogart on the podcast because he needs a lot, a lot more love from us. Yeah. Um, hopefully I won't delete this podcast. Yes, please keep this one, dear God. <laughs> All right. Thanks, man.